Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. This is part two of our Vinyl Arts Conversation with Conductor David Brophy. So if you missed part one, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Remember, you can follow along with David Brophy's playlist on the Galway International Arts Festival Spotify page. Our conversation with David was a big one, so let's get right into it. So go on, Coolio. So that's Coolio and Gangster's Paradise. Um, so I picked this because this um, was a piece that resonates with me from the time when I left college and I started teaching. I got approached to, I got approached by, uh, I think his name is John Breen. Anyone know John Breen? He wrote a play, Alone It Stands. You write that, yeah? yeah. So John, John Breen... Yeah, I knew someone who was in it, yeah. Huh? I knew someone who played, played in it for years. Yeah. So he yeah. eventually afterwards wrote Alone It Stands. Alone We Stand? Yeah. And um, he at the time was working, before he was really writing, mm. he'd studied drama and that. He was working the Liberties VC on Bull Alley Street in Dublin. And, and there was a, a secondary school there at the time. And he, was, he had this bright idea that he... The National Chamber Choir were running an opera program, a kids' opera program, and he signed up the school for the opera program right. and was accepted. But he had no one to take the kids for the opera, so he got my name from somebody and rang me and said, "Would I go in and take, give the kids basically four or five months tuition from September to maybe February?" And what age were they? They were like I was ended up dealing with first years and second right. years, okay. so they're like they were twelve, thirteen yeah. year old, that kind okay. of age group, and I. I still teach now. I love teaching. I'll always teach. That's probably the one thing that keeps me sane because you wouldn't conduct for sanity. Uh, but the teaching keeps me certainly sane. That certainly does, you know. So I've, I've always seen somebody said somebody would teach. Um, so I said, great. So I went into the school. And, my f- and at the time, this would have been 1995, 94, I'd say. So that had just been released. Yeah. Uh, Coolio Gangster's Paradise. And... So, but I have to teach them an opera written by Colin Mobby called The Torque of Gold, which is definitely not Coolio and Gangster's Paradise. And it was a great opera. And, um, but it's written in an idiom that, how do I put this nicely? I probably can't. That maybe certain, I suppose certain parts, like uh, particularly inner city kids who've never come across opera before, maybe in the same way as maybe kids from, dare I say, less mm. well-off backgrounds or more well-off backgrounds would have come across opera maybe before. Uh, this idiom was kind of alien to them. And of course, I went into the school and they were not interested in anything in opera at all. So I realised I was on a kind of a sticky wicket here. How do we get this through, you know? So one day, and I wasn't dealing with loads of kids. It was maybe like seven or eight kids, mm-hmm. but they were all tricky. And they'd all come from difficult backgrounds and, you know, it was tricky. And there was one of the kids there who, she was probably 13 and she was about six foot six whatever they were feeding the poor child she was huge tall slim thing and i was doing some of the opera the piano and getting them to sing and all that and they were kind of was really struggling trying to get something out of them you know uh she got up i was probably my second or third week she got up and she went this is a pile of shine and walked out of the class and she walked by the piano she took the lid and flung it down and i had to take my hands out of the way just in time, I would have got my fingers caught. She was, you know, so no one went after her. She just went and I went down and told the principal that we had a kind of a walkout today, yeah. you know. Uh, she, that kid wasn't seen for two weeks. So I realised that I'm dealing with kids that are in really difficult situations. And um, 
they need, I need to meet them halfway. Now, I wasn't taught how to deal with these people in college, so I'm using all my, whatever my innate instincts are. So I said, I'm going to meet them halfway, and I learned to play Coolio, Gangster's Paradise, on the piano. So we go in the next day, and we do the opera, and I'm playing the song, it's the usual thing. And then there's kind of, this, we have a break, and there's a bit of chat. Take a break. And the, ki the kids were all good kids, but they were tricky in terms of trying to get this together. Um, so during the break, I'll chat. I just sat down at the piano and I started playing. But the bass line's out. And suddenly, here, here, what's he playing? So, 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 are you playing? Is that, is that Gangster's Paradise? Is that, is that Coolio? Are you playing? Come here, show us. And they're all up on top of you. Suddenly, there's like everyone in the room is right beside the piano. Like, talk about a magnet. Hell, what keys are you playing? Look, take it. Look at what the keys he's playing. Write them down so we can play the words back, you know? And it was like, really, I'm saying, right, this is, the, this is my road to Damascus moment, you know? Like, I know this is, this is the, way, the way forward here, you know? So we sat down. We just spent the rest of the session. I said, I'm going to teach you how to play it. And from that day on, I was in with no problem mm. with the opera. And we had to draw parallels between Coolio is telling stories. Rap music is about storytelling. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the words that he uses in the song, they can, kids can identify. Mm. Those from less well-off backgrounds can identify rap music really well. Mm. So we tried to draw. We spoke a lot more about storytelling. And we spoke a lot more about how storytelling was part of what opera's about. And that while they sound different, we're all telling stories. And actually, a lot of them are telling similar stories yeah. about love, loss, and death, and all yeah. the usual themes that go through everything. And I learned a huge amount from those kids. And I wish I could meet them now and say thanks. Yeah. Because they were great kids, yeah. fantastic kids. I wish I could thank them. I learned a huge amount. They don't even know, but I didn't learn enough from those kids. And that piece reminds me of them. It's a lovely piece, and it's great. The next piece, then, as well, is it, it's another shift, but it, it's more towards a, a like a distinctly Irish idiom. Again, was that something? Was that in the house? You know, the little bits and pieces of music that were in the house, or is this something? Of, well, obviously, just growing up in Ireland and playing music, you would have come across some amount of Irish music? Uh, well, maybe let's play it first. Okay. We're yep. so lucky to live in a time where we can listen to Martin Hayes yeah. play. Yeah. And yeah. that's just, that's, yeah, like I completely, like, because I mean, if, you know, if I was born in 1890, I would never have heard Martin Hayes mm. play. That My life would have been a lot poorer as a result of that. There's no doubt about it, you know. Uh, so that is Martin Hayes, uh, and yeah, so the reason I put that piece in, well, I, apart from the fact that I was so fortunate to have worked at Martin mm. a number of times over the years on various projects, um, but there was kind of like, um, yeah, probably like, in the, like you talk about was there music, like Tiernan, you asked about mm. like traditional music, there was certainly, whatever about any music in the house, there was definitely no traditional music in the house. Right. And, um, and my father would have been... He's completely changed now. Like he would go, he would go, he would like crawl over like dead bodies to call hot coals to get to, yeah. to Martin Hayes' gig, you know. At the time, something, I'd say maybe something like, I think maybe my parents' generation, some of my parents' generation would have been, would have been in fear to some extent of Irish culture. Uh, yeah. There would have been a kind of, of what they don't know. Mm. So they don't, didn't, they couldn't speak the language. So they think it'd be hard to find the music, you know. Uh, there were in some music. And my, Father might have, would have possibly referred to Irish music as that diddly eye music, you know, a little bit, mm. you know. And not his fault, but just the way yeah. of way his yeah. upbringing is and that, you know, like, and, and could have been maybe mildly 
um, hostile against maybe things like TG Car and that, you know, kind of saying, why is that money being spent on that type of thing there, mm. you know? And so, and I would kind of question, I would, I would have said nothing at the time and questioned, why is that like that? And then I, and then as I grew up then, I kind of went, I got really, and recently when my kids were born, they went to Irish language school, mm. I got really into Irish language. And my Irish is, I wish my Irish was better than it was, but I have some Irish, I can speak a little bit. And, um, and I can understand quite a bit of it if I yeah. watch and you know. And then all of a sudden, I kind of, and I was, at the time I was reading about Sean O'Reilly and his change from mm -hmm. John Reedy to, to becoming Sean mm -hmm. O'Reilly and down to Coulee and, and the whole immersion in the language and the music and the culture and the people and all that type of thing, you know. And I kind of was thinking about that and kind of going, I'm missing out on something here if I don't engage. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I'm, of course, the classical, the so-called classical bards, well, I, don't want, I don't know what classical music is. That's the one thing. Whatever we're conducting, I might get that one. I'll never understand what classical music is, you know. Mm. Mozart didn't write classical music. He just wrote music, and we yeah. called it classical afterwards. But you look at people like Bela Bartok and Zolta Godai, Eastern Euro European Hungarian composers, they collected traditional and documented traditional yeah. music all through the first half of the, of the 20th century. They recorded people who were in their 80s and 90s singing songs that would mm. never be heard again. They wrote down the tunes, they published them. All that kind of archival work that kind of came about, maybe, it, maybe I think off the, off the back of the First World War, Second World War, we feel we're losing things, mm. we're losing buildings, we have, to, we have to hold on to our culture, you know, otherwise things get lost. So I kind of got into all that, and that, that was a path for me then into Irish music. And um, strangely then, when I started doing gigs with my, with the, I started doing orchestral gigs with traditional musicians, which I think the, for me, the jury's out on, on whether they work or yeah. not. You know, I still have a kind of a, I still listen to stuff I do with traditional musicians and I go, oh, it wouldn't be great without the orchestra. You know, there's still times I do that. And then there's things I do with the orchestra and traditional music, musicians, and it is great, yeah. but it doesn't always work. And, um, and I think that's probably good for a healthy place mm. for me to be that like, you know, I think people kind of think, oh, he thinks the orchestra and the trad thing is great. I kind of, sometimes I go, oh, no, let's not do it. Let's just leave it the way it is, yeah. you know? Um, so, but I, having had the good fortune to work with so many great traditional musicians, um, I kind of feel, you know, my life has been, my musical life has been hugely enriched. And particularly when you go back to Vivaldi, there's so many, I believe that the, the gap between traditional music in the 18th century and so-called Baroque mm -hmm. classical music was so narrow. So you look at Gimignani, an Italian fiddle player, came to Dublin in the early to mid-1700s, travelled with an Italian band, loved Dublin so much that he stayed and said, lads, I'm not going, which is on the tour. They went on to wherever else we were going back to the UK. He stayed in Dublin, died in Dublin, and met Turlock O'Carlin. Yeah. And O'Carlin's concerto is written in Italian grosso, concerto grosso mm. style that he got from Gimignani. And that whole synergy existed hundreds of years ago. And I don't think we're kind of back to creating the same synergy with orchestra and yeah. trad now, but we could in the years ahead. I think it's worth digging to try and find a, a way. There's a space there. There's a space there for that yeah. to work. Yeah. I'm not sure we've got it yet. Yeah. I suppose uh, it's like, I read, I, I read a few years ago, and Bob Dylan wrote about meeting um, a, a jazz piano player just after he'd moved to New York. And he said, you could go in in the afternoons into the clubs when they're rehearsing. Yeah. Monk, Thelonious Monk. And he says you could go in and you could watch them rehearse and, and sometimes they'd throw you out and sometimes they wouldn't. Yeah. And he's watching Monk and Monk stops yeah. and says, what do you do? And he says, I play, I play folk songs. Yeah. And Monk says, 
that's all we play. We all play folk songs. Yeah, that's, so yeah. it's all just folk song, you know. Yeah, so. it's as Monkey knew what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, it all is folk music. The Rite of Spring is full of folk music. Yeah. You know, so on, Beethoven's music is based on a lot of mm. folk music ideas. So we're all playing folk music and we're all playing traditional music. Yeah. And so tr tradition is both old and new at the same time. It looks back, yeah. it looks to the present, and it looks forward all the time. And actually the debate within traditional music, some of it would have been actually off the back of, there would have been an awful lot of so-called purists and traditional music that would have completely stood back at the whole orchestra thing mm -hmm. when I was kind of going gung-ho with the concert orchestra. And now, and on the back of it, I would listen back and go, well, I'm kind of with those guys a little bit now. I'm not sure about it now, yeah. you know? And then some of the so-called purists now would have turned about, actually, that wasn't bad, you know? And th so there's an internal, the internal conversation that's gone on in traditional music is my internal conversation yeah. in my head with how to deal with classical music. It's exactly the same thing. But I suppose and there are there are those conversations, there are those kind of hierarchical conversations, whether they're right or not. There are hierarchies that and have within to be the hierarchies are there and yeah. like within even within classical music we would have like you look back and listen to old recordings of Beethoven symphonies from the nineteen twenties and thirties, they were all performed the same way. And then sometime in the nineteen fifties you had people like Nicholas Arnoncourt who decided to go back and read all the old treatises written in the eighteenth yeah. nineteenth century and then we had so called performance practice. So I had to play eighteenth century music the way it was heard in the 18th century yeah. or with those kind of 18th century ears on. So there's been a huge sea change in how we play Beethoven now compared to how we played Beethoven 30 years ago. Yeah. And that's off the back of an internal conversation in classical music that's very, very similar to the same internal conversation in traditional music. And actually, I think now, I think this over the past 10 years, rock music is in danger of going the way classical music goes. Mm. I think it's in danger because particularly with the kids... So I think of my kids, and my eldest one is, is 16 now, my youngest one is 13 now. And if you look at all the kids' films, the animated films coming up, all the, there's very little new music in the films. Mm. The music's played for the parents. The music comes from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, maybe some of them the 80s. And all the, my kids are growing up with the music that was all written before they were born. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, well, that's the way classical music was. And you kind of wonder that in 50 or 60 or 100 years' time, are we still going to be thinking of playing the Beatles and music from the 20th century, yeah. the great rock yeah. icon, yeah. iconic music? And does that then lead to the end of rock music the same way as it led to the end of classical music? Mm. And what is then, you know? So all these things, they're all the same, and the internal debates are all the same. And I've learned a huge amount from talking to traditional musicians. And there's a lot of brave traditional musicians. Like Lima Flynn, mm. when he was alive, when I had so many conversations with Lima Flynn, about the Brendan voyage and about all the abuse he got. He got abuse from his own people from traditional music and he got abuse from orchestral musicians mm. and classical heads. Yeah. yeah, he walked in and kept going. I mean, that is really ballsy what he did, yeah. you know. And we had endless conversations with Liam when he was alive about all those type of things. And those conversations, they feed into my own internal conversations of what I'm at now. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm saying, like, I, I think when years ago I used to conduct very safely even now I think I conduct a bit safely. And now I'm looking for the danger. Now I'm going to go into the symphony orchestra speaking and I'm going to go, where's the danger here? Because <laughs> I know you're playing double 40, but are we really driving the bus off the cliff? That's the way it should yeah, feel. Yeah. And so I'm now looking for, I'm now coming to the part where maybe like, as I rapidly launch into my 50s, you know, maybe now is the part where I'm going to start, let's, be, let's live dangerously, because that's where it's going to be. Okay. That's where it's going to be. <clears throat> You know, in the great 18th century tradition, that's where it's going to be rhetorical and persuasive because mm -hmm. that's what's important, you know. And those debates are going on no matter what the type of music yeah. it is, and I, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah.
White Stripes. Yeah. Playing marimba. Yeah, I, um, I came across Jack White actually in the Raconteurs, which is a band he was part of. And uh, oh, there's too much music, isn't there? <laughs> I can't keep up with all the music. You know, you can look at all the music there is out there and I try to keep up on what's going on currently as well and all the old stuff written by the dead people and everything else. There's just too much music. But I went through a raconteur's phase and was really, uh, and then got very interested in reading about Jack White and he's written a lot, he's a very, very intelligent man. Mm. And I have a lot of time for him. And I've seen him in interviews on television and online and that, you know, his view of the world is like really, I would say pretty spot on, you know, in terms of he's a very clever guy, interesting man. And I love songs that tell stories. And that one's, that's a song about, that's called The Nurse. Uh, we shouldn't really be playing it because, <laughs> not at this time, because it, I was reading today on truthaboutnursing.com. <laughs> they, they, they said the song is excellent, but they gave it half a star for what it t says about nursing. Yeah, <laughs> well, the song is not so about nursing. The song is really about it's trust. It's not all about nursing. Of course, it's all about trust. <laughs> yeah. And where your place in the world and how you trust people. And um, by just that opening line, the nurse should not be the one to put salt in the wounds. Mm but it's always with trust that the poison is fed with a spoon. With the marimba uh, in the background. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and, the, and then you've got this kind of, kind of kooky marimba thing, yeah. background with this kind of, and the White Stripes are two people in the band, if you don't know them, uh, Jack White and his sister Meg White, who is notoriously known as the worst drummer on the planet, mm. uh, because her drumming is like crazy, it's off the wall, and she never keeps one tempo, it changes tempo all the time, and things, but I love the sense that like this is kind of feels like it's kind of homemade, but there's really high quality yeah. to this, I think, you know? Yeah. And it feels like it's stuck together like with gaffer tape and bits of sticky back plastic. Yeah. And it was done in a couple of sessions, you know, like and uh, and there's things like I kinda of get the impression that the guitar fell and they kind of <laughs> left that in the song, you know what I mean? You know, I love that kind of, you know, that kind of rawness about it. And uh, the, maybe the older I get, the more I'm looking for humanity in music, and this seems like mm. really human to me. Yeah. And, uh, and you've got these, it's utterly schizophrenic. So you, you've got this notion, you've got this little groovy thing going on with the shaker, the egg shaker, and the marimba, and you get this hit on the percussion and the guitar. <laughs> and then there's a bit where you go, <laughs> like this. And I'm kind of going, some days I feel a bit like that myself, actually, yeah. I kind of wanted, I'm kind of on the outside of Gavin and someone going, God. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of the White Stripes and that song resonates with me. Storytelling is important. I think, but that's, like, everything we've played so far basically is some sort of story. You know, I suppose that's the, again, it brings back, it's all just music and it's all about communication and some idea of... It's the eternal, it's the eternal mm. mystery. You know, because every, all forms of art is about storytelling. Architecture, yeah. buildings tell the story. Yeah. Uh, visual art, sculpture, everything tells a story. Literature, poetry, storytelling. But music, the mystery behind music, where it tells you the story, but then it gives you some internal feeling that we can't understand. Why do certain rhythms and pitches and yeah. combinations of notes and harmonies make you go, oh, that was nice. Or that was this, or that was that makes me freaky, or something, yeah. you know. And this, there's something about music, as I think it has to be one of the dark arts. There's something going on behind it. When when you're conducting, if you're conducting, do you ever get lost in the thing? Like, would you be ever in danger of falling um, off the cliff yourself? There's a few times I've actually lost a bit of balance on yeah. stage, like actually physically. Yeah. Because I've just suddenly gone somewhere like really, really far away. Mm. 
<laughs> and I'm in that space and I kind of don't really know. Maybe for a couple of bars and I don't know where yeah. I am, I'll come back and I, again. Actually, I did, I, I did, this is a, go back to Martin Hayes, I did a gig when Martin Hayes got lost. Mm. Totally lost. And no one knew, except me and Martin, maybe the orchestra, yeah. maybe you know. And he was, um, it was with the concert orchestra and he was, he just closed his eyes and was playing and he won't mind me saying this and I won't. Mm. And um, I was, I was, he was playing a slow air and he, he was gone. I could see him, mm. he's gone. And then suddenly his head opened and his eyes opened and he looked up as if to say, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and what? And like, what are all oh, these people here? doing in my room? What's going on? <laughs> he was really that far gone. Yeah. And he kind of started, kept playing and didn't, hadn't a clue mm. where he was and kind of stopped. And I, I just looked at him, I smiled and I said, play anything. This isn't the concert. Mm. So he noodled a bit, like really well, yeah. like really, really well. Then he found his way back to the tune. I turned a few pages and I said, right, I reckon he's here. And I said to the orchestra and I held, while he was noodling, I just held a low D down on the celly. Yeah. And I stopped everyone else. So the whole band go, oh, something's happened here. I just go, don't play. You just keep playing the D. So I'm kind of improvising here. Mm. And for some reason, when these things happen, I get really calm, like seriously calm. I don't know what that is. I'm kind of, I, maybe I panic when it's gone well. I don't know. Yeah. I've just done this, this, obviously you're all, this is really, this is therapy. This is not, Paul, you, you've asked you down here, you should provide a leather couch. This is therapy. Here, I should lie back here, yeah. He should have a, he should have a black notebook taking notes. Well, you call this vinyl errors. It's down for therapy. I'm never going to Galway for therapy. And um, so uh, he, and he finds his way back and then I eventually say, right, I reckon we're there. And I say, bar 114. And I put my hand back down. Here. Everyone knows there. And yeah. it was grand. Everything went on. So uh, all musicians, I think, go to a place when they perform music. Mm. They go somewhere. And I think if you're ever really a lot in the space and you're aware of things going on around you, there's something wrong, you yeah. know? So I definitely go there, but I can't afford, the responsibility is so big and I have so many people looking at me. Yeah. I think if I played more, I probably would definitely go way, way, yeah. way, way to, yeah. you know, Guatemala. But I only go down the road now a little, yeah. bit, you know, a little bit because I've got people looking at me who expect to get that there and cue that yeah. there and that's soft and you're playing too loud and it has to be faster. And, I, you know, yeah. you're reacting so much. The weird thing about conducting is that it looks like you're controlling. You're not controlling, but you're trying to keep everything together. Mm-hmm. So you're reacting to things. That's a bit late. Watch here. That's a bit flat. Keep the pitch there. That could be louder. Play softer. She's playing. Listen to that, you know. Mm. So you're really just like kind of juggling plates, spinning yeah. plates, you know, yeah. like you're kind of that type of thing. Um, so it's not the same way you can go away into a space, get lost. But I do as much as I can. I'd love to more, you know. Yeah. I mean, I presume Herbert von Karajan, when he first went to the Berlin Fell, and all those videos of him with his eyes closed, going like yeah. this. <laughs> and this, you know. Yeah. I presume he was there in his yeah. face, you know. Yeah. He freaked out the Berlin Philharmonic, apparently. You talk to players in the Berlin Philharmonic and they couldn't believe he didn't look at them. He was just, just they yeah. a whole day of rehearsal without looking yeah. at them. <laughs> it's bonkers, maybe, the whole thing is mad. Next. <laughs> the whole thing is mad, yeah. So we're kinda nearing the end. We've just a few bits and pieces left to play, but and I and I suppose we're kinda moving back towards I suppose if you want, the classical tradition now. Um, and and this piece is uh, it's a Ramo, is that is that Ramo R- R- bang Ramo? on, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we couldn't. I couldn't find the, the version you wanted, but it's it's a short piece, um, um, and we play it first, I suppose, yeah. and then. And I think, but again, what I found interesting listening to this was the, the approach to the instrument. 
compared to say as you were talking about with Beethoven and the approach to the instrument as well in terms of just how you either sink into it or dance over it almost you know so we'll just we'll try a little bit of this it's is it La Poule? La Poule. La Poule. La Poule. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just love that. So that's La Poule by Rameau, the hen. And I, 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 I love 18th century music, and I kind of love the 18th century in general. Uh, because I, music in the 18th century, if you read about music in the 18th century, it was, one, it was regarded more as one of the sciences. Mm. We tend to regard music now as being part of the arts. But in the 18th century, it was more like one of the sciences. And composers... Vivaldi being, when we spoke about the Four Seasons yeah. being programmed music, observed the world around them and kind of reflected that somewhere in the music. So that's La Poule, the hen. So those repeated notes are the hen pecking. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. And then the balum is the, you know the way they move quickly. It's such a hen. It couldn't be a goat yeah. or an elephant or a giraffe. It has to be a hen. And I just love the fact that Ramo somewhere saw a hen, observed it, and, and then we wrote it down what he observed <laughs> in that little piece of music and created what would be we'd recall them character pieces now, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, now the recording I was looking for, that's a good recording, it's a yeah. pretty good recording. The one I was looking for, if you want to look this one up online, is by a Russian pianist called Grigory Sokolov, uh, who is for me the best man on the planet for piano music, for playing the piano. And uh, I've since lockdown started and I was at home um, feeling for, sorry for myself without orchestras. I kind of feasted a lot on a huge amount of Grigory Sokolov mm. and would, days would go by when I would just listen to Grigory Sokolov all day long. Uh, so his recording of La Poule is amazing. Yeah. He has, his articulation of ornaments is stunning, you know. Um, and I just love, again, this is storytelling again, you know, there are certainly pictorial music in some way. Uh, and I'm fascinated, I love, like, the, like people say to me, you know, um, What's it about classic music that you get, you know? I love the notion that Rambo wrote that like probably sometime in the 1720s, maybe mm -hmm. 1730s. And here we are, nearly 300 years later, listening to the same thing that he wrote. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel that there's a kind of, a, for me, classical music represents a kind of a, 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 a conversation across the centuries between human beings who felt how we feel now. Mm -hmm way back then and put that into music and we can hear it now and we kind of go, God, if they were dealing with it 300 years ago, maybe we could deal with all that same yeah. stuff today or something, you know? And I just love that. It's a conversation, the music is. We basically hear the same thing that they, that they wrote, all that. In the same way, I know you can say, we look, we look at a painting, you know, a painting from the 1720s, you go, okay, we see the same painting they painted, but we look at it with different eyes and obviously we hear this with different mm -hmm. ears because we've heard the Sex Pistols and the White Stripes, yeah. you know, that changes our perception, you know? But for me, classical music is like time travel, <laughs> where I can go to a place that's very, very far away, both in terms of the space in my head, but in terms of, like, historically, very far away, and imagine what that world is like. And we also, like, I think we take it for granted that, like, when that piece is written, there was no such thing as a switch. So, you like, on the wall, a button. Okay, yeah. Oh, right. sorry. For yeah. a light. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you had walls, but no, there was never a switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just didn't exist. Yeah. So with those things didn't exist. Yeah. There was no air conditioning. You didn't hear what we hear now, yeah. the, the fizz of that. There was no speakers. There was light, but it was candles. Uh, there was no television, no radio, mm -hmm. no way of recording. You would have heard horses. So to hear this music and orchestral music in the middle of that, what seems to me like a kind of a sonically barren landscape, mm. must have been unbelievable. You know? And if you go back further, particularly choral, I didn't put any choral music in really, but choral music back from the like, 15th century, 16th century, 
that must have been mad to hear that music oh, yeah. in, in amazing you know, churches yeah. and cathedrals across Europe yeah. and to go, yeah, well, I'd kind of believe it if there was nothing mm. else going on except that music. You, know, yeah. you would kind yeah. of believe stuff like, you know, yeah. or believe something like, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that's what that piece does to me. It brings me somewhere else. Uh, just before we play the next one, um, it, it's another thing as well, I suppose, about, about, about a player. So you were saying like Sokolov, Sokolov is, yeah. is the, the person to hear because of his... His approach. I mean, you know, it's it's more than skill. Yeah. Because I suppose there's you know there's a lot of skilled there's piano a lot, players. Or, skill, or, yeah. So what's the difference? Oh, okay. If, Where do we start, Sokolov? Right. So Sokolov <laughs> is an animal. So you look at him. He's got he's got mad, grey hair. He never. I've never ever seen him smile. He never smiles. Right. He comes out on stage. He does a cursory bow. He sits down and just plays the piano. He's like he has utter disdain for the audience, and. Uh, and he's only there for the music. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I'm kind of a lot warmer and reach out to him. That's yeah. my kind of yeah. type of person I am, you know. But his articulation, so the, you know, those bum, 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 mm. bum, 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 those short notes, you can play those short notes like 20 different ways. He gets them hyper short, where he's flinging the hammer at the string so fast that it flicks back off the string. And it really is a peck with a capital P, yeah. each note is. His ornamentation is articulated so instead of he plays you can really hear all the notes in it and you kind of go I listen to Sokolov and go how is he doing that and you listen to piano players talk about Sokolov and go on how is he doing what he's mm. doing you know and I saw Sokolov live he played the National Concert Hall in the 1990s maybe 95, 96 and he played that piece mm. I don't think I took a breath for the first half of that concert was gone oh my god I've never heard the piano play until now yeah. that was a guy who played the piano so it's the, it's the, I think it's the ability to transcend, also transcend the instrument. That's a weird thing to say. So to go beyond what the piano can do and make the piano do things that it should not be able to do. Which takes us to our second which last piece. Which kind of strangely is a very good segue. Well, it's, to, yeah, it actually yeah, works really well. Nice. The next piece. Let me play this one. So there you go. Philip Glass. Not Philip well, Glass. Well, no, it's Mauro Ajamian. Playing music written by John Cage. Or sorry, J John Cage. That's yeah. fine, yeah. absolutely fine. So and Cage stood over her while she was while this was being recorded. I think. I didn't. Well, well yeah. it's gonna, I didn't know that. It yeah. didn't go to that level. Um, so this is played on the same instrument that the Ramo was played on. And John Cage, uh, who is, must be one that gets the prize for most fascinating composer of twentieth century. Mm. Like as a, as a human being, if you don't know anything about John Cage, just take a half hour someday and look yeah. up John Cage. He is a fascinating man, there's no doubt about it. And if ever there was a person who was his own man, did his own thing, played his own course, mm. walked his own road, it's John Cage. Mm -hmm. He's just unbelievable. And he, um, he was, like a lot of composers in the 20th century, I suppose even going far, as far back as Debussy, who went to the Great Paris Exhibition in 1901 or something like that, whatever the hell it was, and he saw gamelan players from Java and yeah. Bali who were starting to be brought to Europe to kind of show, you know, and, you know, off the back of a, a kind of a, not a very proud part of European history, the building of mm. empires and that people were taken against their will to show culture to parts of, to, you know, the Western world that should never have happened, of course, at all. Um, but uh, Debussy heard gamelan ensembles and John Cage travelled to listen to gamelan ensembles. Do you all know what gamelan ensembles are? Maybe mm -hmm. no, yes, possibly. Gamelan ensembles are, how would you say, they're groups of uh, players, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 players that all play 
for want of a better term, little small gongs that sit, they kind of sit down in cross-legged and put them in between there. And sometimes you've got big gongs, small gongs. And they can play a piece that lots of us improvised and they, there's no conductor, but there's a leader and the leader moves between the ensemble. So sometimes I'm leading, I could be leading for half an hour and then somebody else takes over for three hours and the piece could go on for four days. And they're all smoking mad stuff and drinking. And, <laughs> and you can leave the concert, come back two days later and the concert is still going on. In fact, the same piece is still going on. And that's kind of, I was kind of fascinated by, by gamelan music. And uh, so Cage reckoned he could kind of recreate the gamelan in the piano by putting screws mm. and thumbtacks and paper clips and all stuff inside the piano on the strings and rubber wedges and all sorts of stuff. And he called it the prepared piano. And that's Sonata Number no. 5 from Sonatas and Interludes by John Cage for Prepared Piano. And I just love the fact that that doesn't sound like a piano, yet it's a piano. Mm -hmm. But there's also a kind of... There's a kind of a groove to it that, like, it's kind of... It's very... It still sounds very modern, you know, after all... But it almost matches, like, the marimba in the white stripes. Yeah, it is a little bit. It's sort of in that, that it's slightly off-kilter, but right, you know... And, and John Cage, like, I, like he was into, like, this, he's written quite a number of books. I've read a couple of his books. And um, he, he was a big fan of mycology. Is that what it's called? Mm, the study the, of mushrooms. Mushrooms, yeah. And uh, to the extent he nearly killed himself. Um, but he, he traveled around the world doing all sorts of mad things. Like, he appeared on, what was that game show, What's My Line? Or mm. he had to guess what he was. He had to say he was a composer. And he used to go on game shows in America and play his music. And his music was written for like a radio and a television and waterfalling and something else. Yeah, yeah. And he would take that and he would do that there. And he'd blow a whistle. And, then he, and that would be the piece. And there's like stuff, if you go online and just like watch what John Cage did. Apparently he went on an Italian game show where you answered questions on, a, your, on your specialized subject. And he, he got to the final and won the whole series yeah. in Italian answering questions about mushrooms. He was a world-renowned expert on mushrooms, mycology, you know. And he won, like, something like, you know, a million lira or something at the time. Yeah. Like, you know, back in the 60s. I don't know when that was, you know. So he was a fascinating man. And he still is fascinating. And he wrote a piece, probably his most well-known piece, was 4 minutes, 33 seconds, mm. which is 4 minutes, 33 seconds of silence. And uh, I remember, it's kind of a very tense piece. I remember the NSO performed it with one of my conducting teachers, Gerhard Markson, many years ago. And he would stand up in the first movement and he would go like this. And nothing would happen. Mm. And the players would just go like this. For people listening online, I'm making the gesture of instruments. I'm actually having this stuff. You know, like, I'm holding a violin now. I'm holding a cello. I'm holding a flute. Uh, and, uh, so, and, so then, and then he would stop. And at the end of the first movement, they'd all put their hands down. And he did the second movement. And he would go like this. And they would go, or something. And they'd do different <laughs> gestures. And I remember somebody in the audience, this is probably the 90s in the concert hall, going, oh, this is rubbish, get on with it, in the middle of it. <laughs> and I, it was great. He would love, like John Cage yeah. would have loved that. He would have loved that reaction to it, you know, yeah. like, you know, just come on, this is yeah. like, you know, play something, play yeah. a note, you know. I just think he was a, a, yeah. like a, fe a fellow who can think about a piece of music yeah. that has no sound in it. But it's not silent. But it's not That's silent, because this whole point yeah. was that yeah. silence doesn't exist. Yeah. So there's always somebody saying, get on with it, 
or there's or somebody or like coughing, coughing or, or yeah, farting yeah. or somebody does or somebody's slurping or somebody goes out <laughs> or somebody you hear somebody's hearing aid or something goes off or you know or somebody opens their cough sweets you know yeah. and they open their cough sweet takes ages and the noise of the cough sweets glare on the cough itself and eventually they're too late so they end up coughing and then they choke and everybody's so tense I hope that person doesn't die and it's all taken like 10 minutes when it could have been easier just to cough in the first place so uh, so I love John Cage the fact he gave us all the mad things he yeah. did and for the fact he lived a life that was utterly his own mm. Very amazing man. And it's interesting as well, like that prepared piano, you can see that Brian Wilson used it yeah. in Pet Sounds and yeah. you know, Tom Waits built a career out Absolutely. of it, you know, so yeah. the influence is there. This last piece has a... Um, this is just, I conducted this uh, earlier this year in Cork. So this is, and I, I, I've always wanted to do the symphony. I never did the symphony until the first time this okay. year. It's by Russian composer Shostakovich. It's not the whole thing, it's the second movement I love this music for lots of reasons. Um, just, it's the 10th symphony, which is the first symphony he wrote after Stalin died. Mm. Shostakovich and Stalin were at each other like lunatics for the whole life. And he was and banned or whatever. He was banned after he wrote, times, he? Yeah, he wrote yeah. an opera um, called Lady Macbeth in the yeah. 10th district, which was a kind of an allegorical tale about the state of his country at the time. Stalin hated it, banned the music, banned him. Yeah. Uh, he was nearly killed by the secret police at Stalin's behest, you know. And Stalin, after the Second World War, wanted a Victoria Symphony from, from Shostakovich. And Shostakovich wrote a little, small, farted little Ninth Symphony, which was all small and fluffy, just to annoy him, like, you know. And he swore he would never write music again after the Ninth Symphony until, Shostakovich, until Stalin died. Yeah. Stalin died in 1953, and this symphony is written afterwards. This is the second movement uh, of Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony. David, listen, this has been fascinating, um, but we might as well wrap it up now. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Uh, it's been great fun. So Thanks. everyone, can you please give David a huge round of applause? Thank you for listening to Vinyl Hours with David Brophy, part two, here on Galway International Arts Festival's First Thought podcast. See you next time.